Uh, let's go ahead and turn to God's Word. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to continue in our series uh, entitled The Kingdom in Search of a King. You know, these last four weeks, Chuck has done a great job in kind of kicking off our series and giving us an introduction on where we are in the Bible. First uh, Samuel um, obviously has a narrative of the man Samuel. You can say that by the very title of the book. So the first uh, three chapters have really um, kind of carved the way for... Um, the life and the call of this this boy Samuel, right? And last week we saw that the word of the Lord was has been far from God's people, but it came to Samuel last week. And this morning, we are turning the page really in the narrative uh, to a section what which most theologians theologians call the Ark narrative, the narrative of the Ark. So from chapters four to the beginning of chapter seven, we really see that. Samuel has been front and center in the very beginning, but now the ark of the Lord is now front and center for the next three chapters or so. So we have gotten a full picture of the call of Samuel, and now we're getting a picture of the state of God's people that Samuel is entering into. Okay, so we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Um, What we're going to do is I'm going to read the first 11 verses for us uh, right now. And we're going to cover that uh, pretty in depth. And in the second half of the chapter, I will summarize part of it. And I'll ki- uh, take a, a few key verses and read those for us. But let's go ahead and turn to God's word. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, this is verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us! For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. 
the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, knowing that we are often uh, unfaithful to the covenant. That even in this text that we just read, we know that your people have been unfaithful for generation upon generation. And yet, we serve you, a faithful God, who does not leave us hopeless. And Father, we do pray, even in this dark story today of unfaithfulness and punishment, Father, that we would see the hope of your son, Jesus, that we would remind ourselves that we are more alike to these Israelites than we would like to believe. At the same time, we are more loved by Jesus than we can ever imagine. Father, be with us now in this time. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So one of the leading podcasts of this um, year in 2023 is this podcast called Scamanda. I'm going to read a little synopsis of the podcast. Scamanda tells of a story of a woman. Her name is Amanda. She's a a young woman, a wife, a mother who is tragically diagnosed with cancer. Amanda starts an online blog about her life and treatments and takes her readers and followers along her cancer journey. Amanda gains a loyal following and is an inspiration to many. Followers and friends donate money to Amanda and organize fundraisers to assist in her many treatment costs and needs. Amanda joins a church and receives almost weekly cash donations from its members. Amanda, this girl, the journalist, says she is charismatic. She is regarded as authentic, as honest, as loving, as a warrior. But by the title of the podcast, you can probably already guess this. Amanda is a liar. She is a con artist. Over the span of a decade, the journalist traces, it's really interesting, this is the one you can listen to, it's really, probably not for kids, but it's good for adults, it's really good narrative. Over the span of a decade, Amanda was able to convince her friends and family that she had cancer, and convince them to give her more than $100,000 for treatment in the process. Amanda never had cancer. That's what the journalist found. Amanda used other people not for not only monetary gain, but also for the fame and recognition that she so craved in her life. She did not think of other people, but used them. She was focused on her own desires, using others however she wanted to, to get her own way in life. While this podcast is a really extreme example, right, of how people use other people we know this we see it all the time we use other people in our own lives people use others to get ahead in the workplace they use others for the status that it brings them just having them close to them we have seen this done before and for most of us we think we shake our head even at this story right like that can't even be true the last episode of this podcast. That's what all the friends kept saying. This can't be true. This can't be true. Somebody can't be that self-centered, right? 
But we know, we see it all around us. Yet, when we think about our own relationships, and primarily I want us to shift to thinking about our relationship with the Lord, with God Himself, we often have very similar motives. We often are more self-centered than we would like to admit that we make decisions for what is best for us, thinking first and foremost about ourselves. And even in our relationship with God, and we'll tease this out as we go, that we often try to use Him for our own selfish desires. Maybe a businessman finds that it's good to have God somewhere in the workplace, so it brings him in kind of as an attachment. We pray for things that God, we don't know if God desires. We desire them but we kind of neglect whatever the will of God is. I don't care. I just care about what I want. So today in our narrative, this is exactly what's happening with God's people. That the people are trying to use God for their own selfish desires. They're saying, I want the power of God without God himself to use for my desires. So we actually see the narrative does not go well, right? You saw the end of uh, verse 11 there. And what we see from this text, and this is our big idea for today, is that God is in every way sovereign over all things. God is in every way sovereign over all things. And we're going to see, this is a pretty dark story, right? So we just have to sit in it. Sometimes this text is dark, ends in judgment, and we have to sit in it, right? And realize that, you know, we see God's glory abused in verses 1 through 11. And then we see God's glory depart from God's people in verses 12 through 22. Okay, before we get into verse 1, I think it's helpful for us to remember. Remember, we have turned the page where the Ark of the Covenant is kind of eclipsing Samuel in this part of the text. The Ark of the Covenant, the Lord's presence with his people, is at the forefront of the narrative. And while Samuel is kind of in the background and the Ark comes forward, there's one thread that's going through still, and that is that of Eli and his sons. Okay, remember in chapter 2, A word of God came to Eli and said, your two sons will be killed in the same day. Well, those two sons are in this narrative, right? So we have to remember that that's still going on here. But to understand what this text is all about, we need to understand what the Ark of the Covenant first is. That it is central to the text. So we have to understand what is the Ark of the Covenant. It's called throughout the Old Testament, the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the Ark of Testimony. Well, the Ark, if you have a study Bible, I was actually looking at mine this week, and the ESV study Bible has a really, a really good illustration of what it looks like. But it's a rectangular box that was made of acacia wood and covered in gold. And the lid, or the mercy seat, was a gold plate surrounded by two cherubim with outspread wings. And the Ark, it physically held these things, the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna from the wilderness, and Aaron's rod, those three things, okay? So the ark represented these in in kind of in order, God's command to his people, the Ten Commandments, his provision for them, the jar of manna, and his salvation of them in Aaron's rod. In other words, to summarize it, the ark of the covenant represents God's presence with God's people. That's what it represents. The Ark of the Covenant represents God's presence with God's people. Okay, so now let's turn to, to verse 1. Let's look at God's glory abuse. This is verses 1 through 11, okay? So beginning in the narrative, we're seeing that there's two battles in this 
first section of the chapter. The Philistines are battling with the Israelites, and I don't want you to get too uh, hung up on where they are, but it's kind of on the borderland between the land of the Philistines and the land of the Israelites. There's two battles, and in the first battle, the text tells us that Israel is defeated before the Philistines. I want you to notice that this text never says that the Philistines defeat the Israelites. It is always Israel is defeated. So in verse 3, when they are defeated, the elders come and they say this. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Notice the language even the elders use. Why has the Lord defeated us? They don't even entertain the idea that the Philistines have defeated them. The thing is, the Philistines have been an enemy of God's people for some time, right? And often, the Philistines have been used as a source of God's judgment towards God's people for their breaking of the covenant. Did you hear that? It's really important for this text that often the Philistines has been, have been used as a source of judgment upon God's people for their breaking the covenant. In other words, their failure in battle against the Philistines was a direct sign of God's disfavor towards them. So they're asking the right question to start. Why did God defeat us? In other words, what have we done? Why did God defeat us? They start by asking the right question. But instead of sitting in the question, they take matters into their own hands. Instead of turning to God, why did you defeat us, God? They turn to themselves. They take matters into their own hand. In the second half of verse 3, this is what happens. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. I want you to notice that it is the people's idea to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camp. It's the people's idea. God has not commanded them to bring the Ark in the cov- of the covenant into the camp, they do it on their own. And maybe they remember how central the ark was to the river stopping, the Jordan River stopping, or maybe the destruction of Jericho in Joshua 6. Maybe they're reminiscing, remembering, oh, yeah, we need the ark of the covenant. We forgot it. That's why we lost. Let us use the power of God for our own good. One commentator says this, It would be all too easy for the people to believe that it was the ark that brought miraculous power rather than God himself. Especially in a time when the people did not know the Lord, it is practically inevitable that the people should think of the ark as a divine power box. So the elders summoned to rear for their ace in the hole the ark that put, they thought, the power of God at their disposal. I also want you to remember who is bringing the Ark of the Covenant. The two men that are bringing the the Ark of the Covenant are the unfaithful sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. These men who did not even know God himself wanted to use God's power for their own selfish gain. So for this generation, what we're seeing, what Samuel is walking into, that for this generation, the phrase moves from thou art worthy to thou art useful. 
The ark is taken from Shiloh more than 20 miles away. It enters into the camp. And the people let out a great battle cry. Think about, you know, f- it's football season right now. So I thought about when I was reading this text, I'm like, it's in my mind because it's in the commercials. Even though I don't really watch football, it's all around us, right? I think about like warriors on the football field in American times, right? It's not really that. But these big men roaring that we have the power now. And you can feel the pride in the way that they react to the ark entering the camp. I want you to remember that their defeat is directly tied to God's disfavor with them. So you might think that the ark comes in. This is God's presence. And put two and two together, there's disfavor from God towards us. That they might cry out in repentance. Like, what have we done, God? Why did you defeat us? But rather, they cry out, we are in control of God's power now. The thing is, the other side responds in the same way. Both the Israelites and the Philistines. The Philistines had heard about God going with his people in the Exodus. Both the Israelites and the Philistines know of God, know of his power, yet none, neither of them know him personally. They know of his power. One side wants to use it. The other side fears it, but neither know the source of the power. And what is the result? Verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled. Every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. As foretold by the man of God in chapter 2, the two sons of Eli are killed on the same day. Israel is defeated. And the ark of the covenant is captured by the Philistines. What do we take away from this? God cannot be placed under the control of his people. Even if they try it through covenantal means that he has done before like this. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, cannot be manipulated by his people because his sovereignty is what remains from the beginning of the end of time. We can read a narrative like this, and I think that maybe your first reaction, my first reaction was this week when I read it again to prepare for this, was how could they do that? How could they use God in this way? Couldn't they see how they were sinning so blatantly? I think it's an okay response, but I think a better response is to see that we are more like them than we would like to admit that we can easily try to use God for the good things that he gives us. We know the solution to our problem. We just ask for it. Say, I know, I know how to fix my problem. God, bring it to me. Please, just give it to me. Maybe you're very faithful as a Christian. I, it's very good to be faithful as a Christian. If you have quiet times, you come to church, you even go to Chuck's awesome Sunday school class. You're here all the time. But when something bad happens, sometimes we can react. But God, 
I read my Bible. I went to Chuck Sunday school class. How could you allow this to happen to me? So instead of a relationship, it now becomes transactional. It becomes utilitarian. I do this for you, God. Now you better do that for me. You may think, if I have my devotionals in the morning, then he will bless me. My kids will behave and my career will go well. If I pray enough for the same thing over and over again, God owes me a yes. Tim Keller is famous for this question that he asked. I think that this is summarizing what this text is saying and what this application part is getting at. Is that when you think about God, you have to ask, is he useful or is he beautiful? Is he useful to you? Is God useful to you or is he beautiful? Because Christianity is all about a relationship with God, what he has done for you, not about how useful God is to, for you to get ahead. This passage shows us that we do not have a God who was made for us, but we are humans who were made for God. We were made to love, glorify, and enjoy him. That is our end. It's not to use God for our bettering. Let's go on and see how the Israelites react to the ark being captured. This is God's glory departed. Verses 12 through 22. So the ark is captured and there's a Benjaminite that runs back to Shiloh with clothes that are torn. He has dirt all over himself. It's obvious what has happened. He is sent back to tell the people what has gone on. And when the man comes to Shiloh, he begins to tell the city, and the people begin to cry out. But what the text tells us, this is verses 12 through 22, and I'm kind of summarizing it for you, is that Eli was blind. He was sitting down on a chair, waiting, anxiously waiting for the news. So I want you to imagine this. He's blind. He can't see anything. But for the people... A man comes in, shirt torn, dirt all over his face. Does that look like victory? Probably not. But Eli can't see that. All he, all he hears with his ears is somebody running in and roars of crying come. Eli is sitting there without sight. He hears the uproar of the cries of the people. And his, his heart is already agitated, the text tells us. And finally, after all of this happens... The man gets to Eli, says, Israel fled. There was a great slaughter. Both of your sons have died. And the Ark of the Covenant is captured. This is verse 17. Verse 18. Soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, this is what the text says, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. The news was too much for him to handle. The reason it talks about him being heavy was the only, the only reason you would have been heavy. It's not eating too much enchiladas, right? The only reason they would have been heavy in the time is misusing the fat that was given to the priests. So he was heavy. It was a sign of his disobedience. So, so much so that he fell over and his neck broke. He died. 
The news was too much for him to handle. It literally killed him. Not only did it kill Eli, but it also sent, you know, one of Eli's sons was Phineas. Phineas had a wife that was pregnant. It sent his wife into premature labor. Before she dies during labor, she names her son Ichabod. And the text tells us that the meaning of that name, and she tells us with her own mouth, that the glory of God has departed from Israel. God's presence leaves the people. Eugene Peterson in his commentary says, When the Philistines captured the ark, they were carrying out God's judgment against the rotten religious corruption that was flourishing in Shiloh. We see here the effects of unfaithfulness to God's covenant. This story of Phineas's wife is one of the most touching in the Bible, is what many scholars will say. But honestly, what most scholars would agree on is that she was wrong. The glory of God had indeed departed, but not because the ark had been captured, but because the ark, the ark had been captured because God's glory had already departed because the people were so unfaithful. God's people had been unfaithful to the covenant. In, in chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So Samuel is entering into this time that is a dark and gloomy um, season for the Israelites. One of unfaithful priests of God's judgment upon their rebellion. God's glory has departed from God's people. I think it's good for us to have a text like this that is heavy and sit in it a moment realize that we in this room, all of us, this is the judgment that we deserve. This is the departure of God himself from our presence that we deserve on our own merit. If we're to try to stack up our deck and say, this is what I have for you, God, this is the result. He will say, you have broken my covenant. If you're anything like me, you know, if you think about this last week, you can't even count the, many, the number of times you've sinned, right? When I come to confession here in the morning, I always have to summarize. It's like, here's a highlight of the areas of which I, which I sinned, Lord, I'm sorry. You know, it's so big. We sin so often. We break the covenant each and every day that we are unfaithful. We deserve judgment. We deserve God's presence departing. Exactly what happened to the Israelites here. Sometimes we can take God's grace for granted because Jesus is, yes, it's at the center. And it should be at the center. But sometimes we neglect the fact that this is our deserved punishment. But we are New Testament believers. We have a God who does not leave us there. He sends his son to fulfill the covenant on our behalf and take the punishment for our covenant breaking if you were in sunday school this morning you looked at genesis chapter 15 and when there is a promise foretold of a man if it's someone to come a covenant that is made with man the pieces of the animal are laid down by abram and abram goes to sleep he does not walk through the pieces he does not take on the responsibility because god says i know that you will break it but i never will so i will walk through I will not only fulfill my side of the covenant, but I will also 
fulfill your side. I will send my son to fulfill your side of the covenant at the same time. Take the punishment that you deserved. So while the glory has departed for a time in this text, the author of Hebrews tells us that God's glory is made manifest to us in his son. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Listen to this. Verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power today we're talking about sovereignty jesus is sovereign over all things not only is he that hebrews tells us he made purification for sin and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high the biblical christianity is not one about manipulating god for your own gain, but it is one about a humble appeal for God's mercy and grace that is only offered to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. That God's glory comes. It takes on flesh. He, be- he is a real person. He becomes present with His people. Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, perfectly fulfills the law and at the same time is punished for your sin. In Jesus, God's presence will never leave or forsake you, ever. He is a God who is sovereign over all things. At the same time, he is a God who loves us enough to make himself known to us in his Son. So the call for us is to turn to Jesus. It's simple, right? We say it every week, but turn to Jesus. Run to him. Because if we try to have anything apart from Jesus himself, we will always be a covenant breaker. But in Jesus, God's presence and favor will never leave you. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you not abandon us in our sin. For we know that all of us in this room have broken the covenant, have rebelled against the way you have called us to live, that we have run away from you, our loving God, the same time you did not leave us there but you sent your son to be the fulfillment of the many promises of the old testament to fulfill the law on our behalf to conquer sin and death once and for all by dying and raising again fathers we come to this your table we we pray that we would remember that that we are sinners in need of mercy we come to this table to receive nourishment from your son jesus with our heads held high knowing that His righteousness is ours through faith. Father, bless us and nourish us in this time. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.